you are now listening to a brand new episode of Starfleet Escape Podcast, only on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, also known as the Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode number 47 and is being recorded on September 19th, 2014. Today's topic Starship Farragut. I'm Aaron. And I'm Eric. This episode is brought to you by Raven Designs, illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit ravencruise.com. All right, so joining us today are some fantastic people from the Starship Farragut web series. So we have John and Paul. How you guys doing tonight? Howdy, howdy. You said episode you said episode number 47. Wow, that's got it. You know 47 <laughs> is a big reference to Star Trek. It is. And your uh, Starship Farragut is the registry is sixteen forty seven. That's right. And you guys yeah. mention uh, forty seven a lot in the show too. Well, Star Trek in general, if you look at Star oh Trek, yeah seventy four forty seven, I mean they they use that quite a bit, and, and they've made jokes and parodies about using forty you know forty seven ref um, in terms of a numerical reference. I, I'm glad you guys are continuing that tradition. <laughs> Eric's Twitter handle is TrekkieB47. Mm. Yeah, so I, I'm a big lover of the number 47 as well. <laughs> and and then the number, as you pointed out with Farragut, the 1647, that was the number that Greg Jean gave to be the official designation of the ship. So proud proud of that. Greg Jean, recently, I, I, I just shipped a whole bunch of stuff out to him. He's been a supporter of our project. In case you don't know who Greg Jean is, he is the master model builder of both Trek and very a lot of sci-fi movies. And he's he's very a uh, private, very discreet person. He doesn't like to be in the limelight. He doesn't want to interact with a lot of a lot of people. Very introverted, but a very talented man. And and as I mentioned, we got the DVDs out. We started. I started sending him DVDs. I guess about five or six years ago. I I had seen him at an event and got his information and just started sending him art films. And he was great. He was good friends with Steve Horsch, who worked at HMS Horsch okay. Moore Sims when Voyager and Deep Space Nine were running. They were the prop house. Mm-hmm. And I had met Steve Horsch many years ago out in their Burbank shop, and he gave me a very nice tour of the studio, or not studio, their their prop shop, and was just a great guy and and very nice. And he's done a lot of, of things to just Star Trek in general, the whole universe mm-hmm. of movies and films and TV shows but not really accredited or acknowledged in the extent that he should be as a prop maker. So knowing that and to pay an homage to him, before he died, he was he was a fan of ours, and, and he liked, he loved our DVDs. And then a couple years ago, he got sick, and he, he passed on. So we renamed the shuttlecraft and the script that Paul had written for the horse in memory of him. So Greg Jean and, and other people, the Akutas and Doug Drexler, they... They thought that was a nice touch that we did, but we wanted to give yeah. back. Just a little trivia for you. Nice. There you go. That's good trivia. <laughs> I didn't even know that one, so I like that one. So the Farragut started almost 10 years ago, right? It did. It did. Um, November 2004, to be exact, is when the oh, idea wow. was conceived. I saw the work of other fan film stuff out there. 
and this was before YouTube, so you had to download it from elsewhere. And mm-hmm. and I saw Exeter, and I was just I was just blown away. I, I just thought, wow, this thing is just the greatest thing on earth. And I was burning DVDs um, <laughs> and giving them out to people left and right. I mean, and I felt like people would approach like Mike Bednar and my and family members. They were like, okay, this is nice. And I'm like, no, we got to do this. <laughs> we got to do. I mean, this was uh, Mike and I have known each other almost 20 years. Yeah, actually more than 20 years now. And we were making props and models and ships, and I started to collect costumes, and I had this stuff in display cabinets. And then when I saw this stuff, I said, well, we can do this. We can, we've can. we got all this, this stuff, and it was a very novel idea that didn't require a lot of sets to be able to tell new stories of Trek. And uh, But I couldn't get initially. It took a while to get people on board. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote the treatment and then started getting people on board, family and friends, to help put the infrastructure in place. And then after meeting Paul, a lot of things just um, snowballed down where I was getting more and more people on board through his contacts and such. So it took a life of its own, but it took from November 2004 to July 2005, and we launched our project officially at the Shore Leave Convention. And Paul Sieber and myself and another person had sat in a panel that was hosted by Don Cowens of Star Wars Revelations and Jack Marshall of Star Trek New Voyages at the time. Oh, okay. And I'm sitting next to Paul, and I got a stenographer's pad, and I am <laughs> writing down as fast as I can all these notes like a student in class, very enthusiastic. I broached him right after the event and said, you know, what camera did, do you use? And I just drilled him on questions, and he told Paul and I that for us to do this, not having done any of this and not having any formal training in filmmaking, he suggested that we make a three to five minute trailer because all the lessons learned involved would be applied would be the same as making a larger film. Mm-hmm. So we we did that. We did a series trailer in 2005 and we premiered it I think in February the following year. And very humble effort, but really helped us to to learn. And we one of the challenges was just trying to find a guy who could be our camera operator. Could not find mm-hmm. anyone. Uh, we talked to people, and Paul can attest we had some people that we. It did not work out, I think would be the nice way to say it, right? There. <laughs> yeah. But a lesson learned, I had a feeling in my gut that the, that the one person that we had lined up to film our series trailer was not going to show up. And so I bought, a week before I bought, I took money out of my 401k, it took 10k out, I bought all the camera equipment and um, didn't even open out a box. And the morning of, sure enough, that camera operator at 6 o'clock in the morning called me, said his vehicle broke down, he couldn't show up and we were going to have to reschedule and I told him no. I said I've got everyone lined up. I've got craft services. We've got people coming. We've got costumes made. I cannot do it to these folks. So we showed up and I had the box and pulled it out and, and I said, "Well, Paul, what are we you know, what are we going to do?" And he called and put me in touch with Scott Moody of of Star Trek New Voyages and talked mm-hmm. to him about all the settings because it was the same camera that they were using and we just pointed and clicked and that's how we made our Wow. I mean, that was a level of commitment going back then that we were we were making this at all costs. Whichever ones of us wasn't on camera was the one behind the camera. So we just, <laughs> it's, like, it's like if I if I was in the shot, John was filming. If John was in the shot, I was filming. So we just kind of went back and forth. But you know, you you do what you got to do. Now, I see. I would have thought John's biggest challenge was making my tunic back then because I used to be a very large large yeah. fella. So it used a lot of fabric. So I always thought that was his biggest challenge. I know it was buying the camera. <laughs> so 
So how did you guys get started with uh, sets once you started, like, full production of episodes? How did that all come about? Well, some of the sets, I mean, because of the the, um, the innovation of Starship Exeter, where it wasn't their, their first effort, was essentially a corridor, and they had a makeshift captain's chair with green screen. It was very simplistic. But to me, what was... It was about just being able to tell a story. And so the first sets that we had, my father built the captain's quarter and a corridor. That was it. And was Paul, Paul did all the, the blueprints and CAD engineering inspection, the, the construction right. blueprints. My dad built the sets in Cincinnati, Ohio. He stacked all the wall flats in his van, pushed his chair up as far as he could. And, uh, I mean, he didn't need to use his hands to drive. He just let his stomach do the driving. And he drove all the way from Cincinnati to the Bednar Estate over in uh, Mike Bar- Mike Bednar's parents' place in Indian Head, Maryland. We used our boat garage to set up, and we filmed our, our first treatment there. We did use some sets of some of another group that was kind enough to support us back then, but we um, a lot of the sets we constructed and had ourselves. We only built what sets we needed. It was never about building sets. It was always about telling good stories and we used the sets to be that vehicle. So the next one, I think, was a shuttlecraft set, and um, that was nice and was very accurate. And Paul, um, I'll let Paul talk. He was he was working with Mike Bednar. They they hammered that out. Oh, the the thing with the shuttlecraft was there there were no no plans. Like with the sets, there were some drawings and so forth that some folks have been able to John and Mike been able to get from contacts from Paramount. But with the oh. shuttlecraft, there there was there was nothing. So Mike Bednar made like 18 million screenshots, <laughs> and and so I sat there with a compass on the screenshots, going, I think this is what the angle of the wall is. And so then I had to let him know because he was making the console part and I was making the walls and the ceiling. So we kept going back and forth, back and forth. I'm going like, uh, Mike, I think it's 15 degrees. He goes, Are you sure it's 15? I'm like, I don't know. I I looked at the model kit at the store and it was 15. And so. The, the the shuttle that we ended up building is probably more accurate to the exterior than yeah. what was actually on the show. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, the windshield no. slope is actually probably is better, but you know, okay, we we had that we adjusted. I'll tell you what, on screen they they, they did a great job. And then Mike, you know, he's a genius. He like wires all the buttons and the lights and the switches, and you know, he he just absolutely amazing. I mean, yeah, I, you, I, I, that's incredible stuff. You made me think of something too. Um, how did the, a lot of the sets and stuff would get built initially? It was, or at least with the shuttlecraft and the turbolift set, I can I can speak to that more clearly in terms of the console and and some other, like I said, the the, the turbolift set. I had taken a lot of screen captures and I brought an image into Visio and I would scale it. I remember scaling the shuttlecraft console using a data tape slot, and that was my point of reference. And I scaled it up, and that's what the console was built from. And my father built the, the console piece itself, and then Mike Bednar did all the detail work. I mean, just not only painting, but making things mechanically work, and then the electronics, so when you would hit a button, things would do things, light up and, and, and stuff. And then Paul and him worked on the um, the walls and the stuff. shell, yeah. So Paul had worked on that. But on the shuttle, but on some of the other stuff, like the turbo lift set, we, we had to build, we did, we were able to tell some scenes and, and some dialogue just in a turbo lift, and, and I can tell you that in the original series, having done the research on a turbolift set, that they had a set that was like a standstill set of the turbolift off to the side because of the way if you watch 
and if you and, and proof is in the pudding. If you watch the episode by any other name, and mm. when Kirk, Spock, and McCoy walk in the turbo lift, and, and Scotty said, "I got it rigged to blow," and Kirk gets all pissed at them, like, "What?" You know, like, you know. Then they the, the bridge door is open, and he walks out, and Rojan is there, and, and they just go to their stations. And if you watch that whole scene, it's two different sets. Now, hypothetically, they could have filmed that somewhere in one of the other parts, but I'm telling you that to do the shots that they did, I believe that they had to have had a unique turbolift set that was off to the side from the other set, which makes which, which makes sense for filming. But you can see the background of what's behind Kirk in, in some of the shots, and then it becomes different. So they... They filmed that one scene in two different turbulent sets. <laughs> uh, that's how that's how crazy this whole project is. All the attention to detail in talking more about sets. I mean, Mike and his team have, have taken it to the ninth degree. For example, there was a bulkhead that was kind of established by another fan film that it was, I guess, a one by one. And then they went ahead and they threw just watching footage and stuff. They said something just doesn't look right and found out that it was a two by four, which would make sense. You have four by eights divided by a, the, the width of a two by four. So they dismantled all the sets, all this long corridor and redid it just to be right. And I'm like, who's going to know that? <laughs> challenge yet. No one's ever said your walls don't look right. Um, no one's ever done that. And just you tell that these guys, you know, I mean, we're all geeks and we all love details. I know for me, when it comes to costumes, mm-hmm. I, I, I watched one recently, beautifully done Star Trek film, and there were things that were just not right. And I'm like, I can't get past certain things because of what I'm involved with in terms of wardrobe. And so I know that probably for these guys and like Mike and for sets, it's the same thing that it just the details for me on in getting on the wardrobe side. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to sew. I couldn't find anyone to make these costumes. I saw my tailor, the same one I'd, I'd seen throughout my whole, after I got out of the Navy, I was still seeing him and, and I came up to him with the fabric, the patterns, notions and everything. I gave it to him and said, I need a, a small, medium, large kind of thing. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I don't do that. I, I, I do alterations and tailoring. I don't make uniforms and costumes. And so I had to um, – I couldn't find anyone. And so I had to uh, – I bought a machine December of 2004. I had borrowed someone and uh, prior to that and just started learning and bought books and got a lot got of – got awesome at it. That's what he did. He got awesome at yeah. it. You see the setup he has – in his workshop, like somebody else might have, like you know, lathes and, and scroll saws. John's got a lineup, or if it's got to be like <laughs> six different sewing machines, and one does this and one it's does a- that, and he just goes right on them, and stuff comes out. I'm like, I did, you, you know, I'm looking at it, it's like <laughs> magic. I have made. I am. I can. I'm. I'm proud to boast that I have probably the manliest production shop for wardrobe for costume. <laughs> I have my yeah. dad, we've outfitted it with pegboards and, and shelves and lights and everything, but it's the manliest thing that you can possibly know, It's one of those things that's amazing to watch, too. He's got these templates and patterns, and, and it just it, it's absolutely incredible. But this is one of the things that really adds to making Farragut as good as it is, is that when these people appear on screen, they're not just in some off-the-rack thing that they bought someplace. Mm-hmm. People look like they belong on the ship. They're you know they're dressed properly. Their uniforms fit. You know I've I've seen so many fan films where maybe they have a decent story. Maybe they have some decent acting. Maybe the sets are green screen or not. But then they're wearing this big baggy shirt hanging down to their knees. I'm like <laughs> I can't pay attention. 
mm-hmm. you know. I mean, right. it, it it does make a difference. I mean, those right. details. I mean, John might say that he and Mike Bednar and the construction team might call themselves all a little bit sticklers, but those sticklers, man, Trek fans are tough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they are. They're a bastardly bunch. I don't know what it's like in the Star Wars community or. I often joke, like, I mean, do modeler, the train modelers go through all this angst, and, and it, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just the most contentious thing that, you know, I mean, I think we sometimes, as fans, lose track that it's about the stories and the characters, yeah. all this stuff, all the sets and the props and the the costumes. It's just noise. It's just the back. It's the the setting, but it, it's got nothing to do. When I think of Star Trek, I mean, it was cool. Don't get me wrong. I love all the look and feel of 60s Trek and the phaser and everything else and the uniforms, and, but it's really the enduring relationships and the stories that were told and the chemistry that existed with, I think, in part, the Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, and DeForest Kelly. And mm-hmm. the, I think Gene could... I don't think he gets a, enough credit, but he took, you know, in the second season and the ending of the third season episodes, he really took the dynamics of those trio and he played upon it. And, and he was smart enough to recognize that I think Gene probably had it there, but he, Gene Kuhn really is responsible for really writing scripts that evolved on those three. Because before it was more like Buddy. It was the, the Kirk and Spock, the sidekick, the buddy-buddy kind of thing, whereas mm-hmm. Kuhn did some interesting things. and. I'm not saying Gene did not have that. or I'm just saying that Gene Kuhn took it and really um, exploited it. He, he he made it work. And the chemistry that existed between those actors, I don't know of any TV shows that I can I can call out that had those relationships and that chemistry. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I've tried, I've, I've, I've tried and I'm very, I mean, Mike and Holly, I mean, the actors that play in <laughs> Farragut, we, I've, I've tried to figure out that recipe, that formula, <laughs> because Mike and I have been really good friends, and Holly, we're, we're, we're good friends as well, and trying to, and I think that partly, I think, you know, if I had to do it over, the one of the things that was great, when I, when I conceived this, it did not have Prescott in there, and it was Tackett, Smithfield, and Carter, and I was trying to formulate my own life experiences and how I'd want to do this. And I made a two-buddy. Two everyone was nice. Everyone was nicey-nice. And, and there wasn't – where with Spock and, and McCoy, you had that, that antagonist, that, that mm-hmm. confrontational debate all the time. And we didn't have that initially. And when mm. Paul offered, he said, I'd really like to be this. I have this character in mind. I like to – and he, we talked about it. And he described it as Patton. And when he talked about it, I said, well – yeah, he could be like Patton, but you gotta you gotta put a twist on it. And I said my contribution was he needs to be like Tackleberry from the Police Academy. And what I meant <laughs> what I meant what I meant by that is that this guy is he's kind of wound too tight. And Patton kind of was a little bit that he would do these things that was just he was just he was an exceptional leader, but he was eccentric. And there were things that were that made him stand out. And I said you know with Prescott, I said he's got to have he, he's got to be so white like tightly wound and he could snap but he won't and so we, we collaborate on the character and then Prescott was born and I really liked the Prescott character because I thought that Tackett I thought that Carter and Prescott had a lot of good chemistry there was a buddy buddy aesthetically they looked good together and just there you know one was by the book and regulations and Carter who was very cavalier he he hated regulations every how he got in his career was was taking risk and screw regulations. We're gonna get this done. We're gonna get this happen. You know, and and I remember as a yeoman in the navy, I had to do a lot of backdoor things to get things done. So in any event, I liked the 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 chemistry between the two and thought that you know after we made our first pilot that there would be more and more of Prescott and Carter because they were they were opposites and I thought that in the captaincy 
there was a lot of good chemistry between the two. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it kind of deviated from my initial plan because in the next film, For One of a Nail, we were partnered up again and it had Smithfield and Tackett. And I kept thinking that because Smithfield and Tackett were involved and they then they had a bad falling out, but they were rejoined to work again, that there would be some good chemistry and, and dynamics there that could be played upon. So then Paul had left and, and we... Some of that stuff I thought was was missing. I really wanted to have someone to, to I don't want to say be the antagonist. Every day that when you go to work, you have some guy that you relatively get along with, but you don't always see eye to eye, but you're able to get things done. I mean, I know in every place I've been, I work with people that I have to learn to work with them in order to get work done. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I, I just think it's not conceivable that everything every day is going to be blessed and beautiful, and everyone's <laughs> going to get along, and there's not going to be any strife. And No, that's not the case. And if you think you're going to be on a ship for five years with tight quarters and, and people, you're going to have some strife. And so so I kind of digress, but I, in terms of the, the characters and the people, that's what Star Trek is, is about to me. Actually, John brings up a really good point, you know, when you talk about the relationship between the characters and their relationship they have with other people. That was really kind of the inspiration for the next script that I wrote for John, which was The Price of Anything, which was a run that brought his father back into the play. It just, it just seemed to me that the best Star Trek stories were always the ones that dealt with either social issues or relationships. And I thought when I was coming up with a story and I had presented the idea to John, I said... You know, uh, here's a social issue that they don't talk about on Star Trek, divorce. And he said, well, how do you deal with that on Star Trek? And I said, well, what about it's your dad and you haven't seen him because your parents got divorced. And he liked the idea. So, I mean, so this was a way for us to, to talk about a social issue and to talk about relationships. And I think because of, you know, the amazing work that, uh, that John did in this episode, it becomes a powerful story because of that acting, because of his performance level on it. I mean, it just, you know, to me, this was uh, not downgrading myself. We did a great job with Farragut when I was there, but uh, their best stuff came when I left. So, <laughs> I mean, the price of anything is the, the, everything to just top notch. And, you know, I was so impressed to be allowed to be a part of that as a writer. But I think th from the 10 years, the biggest takeaway for me is that it's been a hell of a journey. I had no indication growing up that I could be making movies. It was never, I went in the Navy primarily to, so I could go to college to get a, a, a job and career. But I didn't know filmmaking was even part of the career options that you could ship off <laughs> and pursue. I mean, it just seemed like something done way out in California, far, far away, and I would just go to movies or turn on the TV and watch the, their product, their, their whatever they were putting out. And, and so to be a part of that and create our own, it, just, it was just totally inconceivable for me. And, and so to me, Jack Marshall coined the phrase within our group, to the journey, and he started using it during our last film. And I just reflect on that a lot because this whole thing is a journey. It, it is, <laughs> it's been an interesting ride. I mean, just you have relationships and you have people that, and especially on a volunteer project, that come and go for whatever reason. And you have a lot of external influences and, and how you interact with all these other film groups and the competition and rivalry. But you also have working in partnership and trying to cooperate and support each other as well. So it's been a hell of a journey, and, and just learning this, every film for me is is, is a journey. I, I love The Price of Anything, and I thought that Conspiracy of Innocence was good, but there were some things that, for me personally, I and I'll, I guess, internalize on it about myself. I am looking forward to this new film. We are firing at all cylinders. This is the culmination of many years' work that the script that Paul had wrote was based on an idea that Mike 
Paul and I went to a Nationals game when they were still <laughs> at RFK Stadium. They were not yeah. at the Nationals Stadium. They were at the old RFK, yeah. clunky, rusted, leaking stadium. And we um, talked about the idea. And the next day, I wrote a, I think it was a three-page story. It's three story. pages, because I found it. It's three pages. Oh, okay. Three pages. <laughs> just, just, I wrote it only to capture, because I thought it was so well done, the idea that we had. And... We tabled it. That was in 2007, and flash forward to 2014. Seven years later yeah. is now when the film is now coming together. Of course, we, we've made some changes to it, but it is a great story. And the thing about it, too, that I think people will appreciate, it doesn't tie into the fanboy cliches of a mirror, mirror. So if mm -hmm. people are expecting to see mirror, mirror, Carter, mirror, mirror, Tackett, mirror, mirror, Smithfield, well... You may or may not see that. Okay. You're going to see some interesting stuff. and, and I, So I think the novelty and a lot of what we do is original storytelling. It's original mm -hmm. Trek. I mean, I've, I've, I've said over and over and been consistent from day one that to me, Star Trek, there's 79 episodes. That's my Bible. It's tabled on a shelf. No one can touch it. No J.J. Abrams reboot or fan films. William Shatner is Captain Kirk. Leonard Nimoy is, is Mr. Spock. And I love, I'm not knocking J.J. Abrams' work. I'm not knocking any fan films. But there's something just, it's it's magical. It is it is nostalgic. It's got a lot of enduring memories growing up as a kid. I'm, I'm working on some sets now that we're going to film something over the weekend. And um, I think people will like it. And it brings back memories because as a kid, growing up, I outfitted our whole basement as the sets of Star Trek. Found <laughs> We were so innovative and creative, we found a um, barber's chair that was thrown in the trash. We hauled it, we took it downstairs, and that was the captain's chair. And we had we had um, the TV, the, large, the largest that we had, which was probably a 32-inch back then, or 27. That was our view screen, an old TV in the fam den, family den. We outfitted stuff. We, we turned a wagon into a shuttlecraft. I made uniforms out of colored sweatshirts, and I used silver duct tape to cut the Enterprise Delta, and, and just stick it on. We had laser tag guns as phasers and walkie-talkies as communicators, and we were, that was the greatest thing. And my brother, I always played Kirk. My brother Mike played Spock. And my other brother that we liked, he was Scotty or McCoy. And the one that we did not like, he was either Okra or he was the Klingon. <laughs> You know you're not liked when your brothers make you be the female communications officer. So, anyway, hang on, we beat him up. We we actually it was an excuse to beat him up. So, but, um, great memory. So the 79 episodes of Trek are, are like it's it's like the gospel. Well, now you get to do it as an adult. Exactly. Oh, that was that was my point. <laughs> <laughs> Was that to me? The, you know, the Paramount. You know, when they when they launched Enterprise in 2001, a friend of mine, Brian Makepeace, out in California, told me beforehand that this was the new series coming up because mm -hmm. he was involved in props and stuff and back then for the shows. And he he told me about it. And I said, "Wow, it's going to be so. We're going to see basically classic Trek brought back." And I kept thinking, "Wow, they're going to keep the retro look and feel." And he's like, "No." They're, <laughs> 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 like, so I was disappointed, and then, then fans, just with computer technology and, and software and with computer with um, cameras that they, they had made, you first started to see some of this stuff. And I know that now that fan films, the Star Trek, is nothing common, that going back to the 70s, where they got George Takei to be in the Yorktown, and, and they filmed that. I mean, it's, fan films has been around for a while, but not mm -hmm. to the extent where it seems like now everyone's doing fan films. 
And um, but I think with Farragut, one of the things that we're doing that is exceptional is that we are telling, taking the premise that Exeter had, which was a different ship, different crew, different adventures, and rolling with it. And we're doing our darndest to make sure that it's the stories and the characters that, that that's what the series is about. And I think that after 10 years, I believe that we have our own signature. We've worked, we've got a lot of heart in our production. Uh, we're not pro- professionals per se in the sense that we get paid to work in the industry. We've got careers. For us, this is a creative outlet that we can have fun with family and friends and make a quality film, you know, at least once a year. And I, you know, I think that's a hell of an accomplishment because to be able to have this and do it on on just that level um, is the greatest thing on earth. Now, this is your first foray into the crowdfunding, right? With with no, the crossing, it's not. It is not, my friend. Okay. <laughs> Last year, um, we used Indiegogo, and um, okay. I was responsible for that campaign. I knew nothing about crowdfunding. I didn't know anything actually. And so I used. I was. I knew that I compared what I knew about Indiegogo and Kickstarter. And Kickstarter, essentially, you have to make your goal. If not, then you don't make anything. Whereas Indiegogo, you get to keep whatever you raise. Mm-hmm. But Kickstarter has a larger network, and a lot of people. It's not just about supporting film projects. It's about um, supporting online or community or independent, worthwhile projects. It could be anything, but it's got a larger network, and people. It's this community of people that give back, and, and it's amazing that I, having done the research and just educating myself on it, like a lot of the people that are contributing to our Kickstarter campaign are not even Star Trek fans. They're people that like to support worthwhile projects, and they see a lot of worthwhileness of our, our what we are doing. There's a lot of human interest, I think, involved in our production. A lot mm-hmm. of productions taunt that they're they're professional and they have celebrities, and, and I think that what differentiates, another thing that differentiates us in a positive way is that we are all dedicated volunteers. No one has come together on any on the auspices of getting some sort of financial return or compensation. It was never that and, and, and is not that, and I'm not disparaging any group. I'm just saying that for us, I think the volunteer aspect, that we're all a group of, of Star Trek fans, but we've come together in fellowship and, and family and filmmaking, I think that's what kind of sums up what Farragut's about. But I think that we're all dedicated volunteers. We love this show. We This is a creative outlet uh, community that we've built. And I think that I think that pretty much sums us up being different. So I mean, I, it doesn't bother me to say that we're a fan film at all. Yeah, the, the thing, one thing that John's saying here, and I don't think he's emphasizing enough, and I've worked with other fan film projects for in different genres, Star Trek and other genres, mm-hmm. and Farragut really is a family. Uh, you, you don't meet people like this that, that, that have these, that have this, kind of a unity and friendship behind them like like the folks at Farragut do. And that's why it's so exciting for me to be able to come back and, and to be a part of it again because, you know, you, you just don't get the opportunity when you do films to, to be a part of a family like this. I mean, a lot of times when I go onto a film set, it's, you know, go on, do my role, get the heck out. Yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> the end of the day. Whereas, you know, with these people, it's like, are we done filming, really? Can we just, you know, maybe sit here and, and, you know, hang for a while? I mean, do we really have to go home? I mean, th- these are the kind of people you want to be around. It, it, it's fun to work with them. And Eric and Aaron, one, one thing that I, I – getting back on the, the first adventure and the foray of crowdfunding, mm-hmm. um, we, we, we barely made, I think, four grand on the last one. And um, so the, after, afterwards, 
I don't think I make mistakes. I make a lot of errors, but from errors, I like to believe, in, in terms of internalizing all this, I like to believe that we all make errors. Mistakes I define are when you repeat the same error. So after the Kickstarter, after the Indiegogo fundraiser was not successful, I mean, I kept notes. I, I did the research. I said, well, what did I do wrong? And I took it very personal mm -hmm. because I felt to some degree I let the team down. And part of it was just ignorance, and part of it was just we started late, and a lot of other different other variables that I wasn't aware of. But we did all the research, boned up. I worked with people that had successful Kickstarter campaigns, people that I respected, um, that didn't have any hidden agendas or or such, and we just we worked it out, and I we planned it well in advance. And I got this time, I got everyone involved to be, it was going to be a team effort. So I was committed, whatever happens. And I can tell you that for probably the last two months, I probably get, it's no more than five hours of sleep. Usually I'm up until 1.30, get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and, and still rolling. And it's it's doing my regular job. And then what what spare time I do have, it's fully committed to the, kick, the fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And even just getting up updates, it takes about three to four hours on my part and that's getting other people to get content together to help me, you know, get content as well and, and stuff. And it's a lot of work. And it, I've learned quite a bit from from this the second one. But uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, we I never was I wasn't mad at myself when we didn't make all the money that we could have. I, I said, wow, I learned. I said, next time we, I got to do it right and we got to do it better. And failure was not an option on the second go around. So, so anyway, I wanted to, I wanted to circle back on that. And the second thing that I wanted to point out in terms of differentiating ourselves from other groups, three objectives that we have started from day one that no outfit does to this, all three of them, is that people that work on our film, and this is good for anyone that wants to support us on Kickstarter, you know, is. If you are a, a volunteer and you work with us as an actor, you will get a, a professionally made, accurate Star Trek uniform that is yours to keep, to wear. We don't pay you as a volunteer, but we give you that. And for a Star Trek fan, having a screen used or screen accurate and screen used uniform <laughs> is like the greatest thing on earth. Two, if you're uh, um, someone that works behind the scenes, a crew person, you'll get crew attire. So you get ball caps, polos, T-shirts that have the Farragut films or Starship Farragut embroidered on it as a means to kind of the same same take and then if you, the second objective is when you when you work with us and we're filming you get fed breakfast and lunch we we've always fed people when we shoot and not all outfits do that but we feel again if we can't pay you you at least should be fed and the mm -hmm. third thing that we do is that we go to great length not only to make sure that you are credited properly in the film but you receive a tangible a physical DVD or now we, we have Blu-rays now, last two films. And no other group out there does that. No, nobody does. Nobody does. And we've been doing that for 10 years. So Tell you what, I, you can go from, from, uh, from um, indie films that I've worked on to other fan films that I've worked on. I can tell you what, they, they, they treat you well on the set for Farragut. I mean, that he makes the joke about, hey, you eat. But I can tell you what, I, I've been on low-pay indie films where I'm glad I stuck a protein bar in my acting kit. You know? <laughs> so the fact that you know, I'm filming with Farragut and they're going like, oh, here's the sandwich ring. We've got pasta today. Here's something to eat. And I'm going, look, food, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just, wow, I mean, you feel like a human being. You're treated like a human being. You know, that makes a big difference. But it's part of the family atmosphere, filming with right. these guys. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just another thing that makes you feel like you're you're not just some guy coming in here to do a job. You're joining a family. And it really, it's, it's a terrific feeling. And the people that have worked with us 
for the most part, and like I said, we're volunteers, so some people do come and go. They move, or for whatever reason, they may not be into this kind of thing after a while. Consistently, we have we have the same, pretty much the same group of people that we've had from day one. And even after Paul left, he still was writing for us. And now he's back, and Mark Hildebrand, who took a small reprieve so he could work on his own independent film projects. He worked on two non-Trek-related projects, a, um, a Coast Guard pilot called Semper Paratus, and the other project he worked on was called Anthem, which is a documentary about the Star-Spangled Banner. He worked on stuff, but he still worked. He wrote Night Shift, and he directed and pretty much did everything on that film, and he's involved in this film. So, so The Crossing is really good because, one, we have a really good script. We have Paul back in it as well as Mark. So, it, to, and, and there's some, a lot of, um, I wouldn't call it a sequel, but there's a lot of serialized information from For One of a Nail. So it's kind of a quasi-sequel. There's a lot of references into For One of a Nail that people will appreciate in our in our production. So it's it's very exciting. I mean, I can't wait to film it because I, I'm, I'm just... You know, you never know how many of these films you're going to make. So you, you right. have to think, I'm going to make this the best one we can. And, and there's always something, I think, that comes up that kind of... There's challenges that come up. So there's certain things... You know, there's a, a, a triangle in, in business that sh- says if you have money, time, and there's another element. You can never have all three. You can only have two. Probably not a good reference to make right now because I can't think of the other third item. <laughs> but it was, my point was to say that, you know, you always you can have all you can have some of your cylinders being fired and, and making sure costumes and sets. But because of all the time that's spent on that, you may, may not have the time to work on your lines or you do all your lines well and there's certain things that you don't like because of wardrobe or something else so there's always something but on this film I feel like because there's been so much preparation and because of some the funds now that we will have it's going to really make this to be our standout and epic film and you never know how many of these you're going to make and although you always have let's make this the best one well this may who knows how many more of these we will make but I have to tell you if we were to go out on a swan song this would be it Stars are in alignment. <laughs> this will be your longest episode, is that correct? It, it'll be, um, Paul, what, about an hour and a half? It should be close to an hour and a half. One of the things that um, when, we, when I pitched John the story idea, uh, he, he really um, emphasized the idea of that you know we want this to be an ensemble piece. We have all these secondary characters that are very oh. important to Farragut. And um, we wanted to give them moments that wasn't just, you know, the doctor comes on and says a line. I wanted to give the doctor a moment. I want to give the transporter chief a moment. I'm going to give these people real moments that fit their characters. So that kind of expanded the story because we have a bigger bigger cast in it. Then the other thing was Mike Bednar sat me down because um, both The Price of Anything and Conspiracy of Innocence are, are shorter episodes. He sat me down right at the bat after I pitched a story. And he goes like, I want this one longer. I want an epic story, damn it. And I'm like, okay, we're going to make this one epic. And by the time we got done and we put in everything we wanted to talk about, we ended up about 86 pages. So you're looking at it probably close to a 90-minute film. Well, certainly, yeah, whatever the total length is, it is going to be definitely longer than our last two efforts. And, and doing a web series, you're not limited on how films can be. And we never, from day one, we never said that we should try to template it to be within 47 to 51 minutes long like regular TV. But I mm-hmm. think we all are so used to that that feel of those acts and the teaser and the prologue. And you get accustomed to it. So it kind of feels so short. If you watch it, I mean, the price of anything... I mean, I'm, I I love that. I mean, it is my favorite episode on on so many levels because it was just 
everyone that was working, it was just a magical experience. I love the story. I had some people, a couple, not a whole lot, but a couple people that really said that they didn't think it was that we should do it. And I said, no, I I love it. It's going to work. And it, it to me, it, it's it's the best one that we've done. And I think I'm not disparaging our last film, but I just really love. That's my favorite. So, oh, so my point was, we, you know, you're doing a web series. You're not templated to do it at a certain time format. And the mm-hmm. problem is, is that when you do it short, it feels short. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that was that was with Mike, and I have to agree that it needs the last two films, and they're about equally in length. You just kind of like, you kind of feel like, well, there there needs to be more. And um, I think this is going to be great. And there's a lot of battles and. and a lot of action. It's just, it's going to be, my favorite episode in Classic Trick is the Doomsday Machine. Mm. And I, I think it was always that, and I remember attending that convention in 1996 where Scotty was out here locally and um, someone asked him what his favorite episode was, and he said the Doomsday Machine. And I always <laughs> remembered that. A great, great story. Um, I don't know if you guys are reading the books by Mark Cushman. But I didn't know that that was kind of tabled after Moby Dick. I guess everyone else but me <laughs> probably knew <laughs> that. It's interesting how something like that is is a common theme is recycled. I remember David Gerald actually tabled the Trouble with Tribbles was actually based on like guinea pig, some other story or something, and kind of remolded and packaged, and it works at least for those two episodes because certainly people know know about them and love them as much as they do. I think I think when John and I really started taking a look at this story when I when I repitched it to him with the with some new story elements just last year and uh, I think one of the things we said he said to me is he goes he goes let's make this our wrath of Khan I mean let's make yeah. it you know let let's well, let's make this let's make this something that people epic. are gonna go like wow holy yeah. crap I don't believe you guys went there you know I, let's just say without giving any story elements away. This crew is not the same at the end of this story. I mean, it is that mm-hmm. big a story. The impact on the characters is huge. Mm-hmm. They will all have some difference to them at the end of this story. So, I mean, and, and to me, that's... When you look at Wrath of Khan, Kirk is different at the end of that, obviously. Yeah. I mean, these characters are changed from the beginning and the end of the story. So that's kind of really what we were shooting for here. We wanted to give these people something, you know. Wow, life-changing event here. And that's what it is. We've got a life-changing event. So I think it's. I think the fans are really going to uh, really, really going to enjoy this one. I mean, we we put a lot of thought into the story, and we we've really gone back and forth. Um, I know I went back and forth with the director uh, and John multiple times. You know, can we do this? Can we not do that? Should we bring this in here? Should we move this over here? So the final script that we're really looking at the film. I mean, we have really put everything into maximizing everything that we can possibly do. I mean, it's, it's going to be amazing. I'm very excited to be a part of it. Yeah, it's going to be epic. I mean, I hate that word, but it really is going to be epic. <laughs> epic seems to be overplayed nowadays, but in, in terms of we're going to have so many people involved as background people. We It's it's not just – Paul and I, I mean, we don't want to disclose too much because we want it to be a, fan, um, I mean, a surprise for fans, but it's just – it is going to be like it's going to be huge, like the Wrath of Khan in terms of all levels: sets, props, costumes, actors, cast, just everything. It would be the fan films of all fan films. I like. To think. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll leave it at I guess that. I mean, when I wrote the price of anything for John, I remember asking Mike Bednar what sets they had built. So I wanted to make sure that I didn't do anything 
in the screenplay that was like something that they had to go from scratch. And we're like, oh, I don't want to like invent some new set and have them go like, what the hell are you doing to me? We can't build this. But when we went into this story, when I got done with it, there's some new sets in there, and it was kind of like a, oh, uh, we we got we got to we got to build that now, you know. So I mean, that's some of the stuff that's going on. You're like, thanks for creating entirely new rooms, Paul, that we've never seen before. We're going to have to go and make that, you know. But some of it also stemmed from the fact that these guys had just built some things that no other fan series had done. There's a full auxiliary control room from Star Trek sitting down with those sets. Nobody oh, has wow. that. Wow. Nobody has that. So I can guarantee you it went into the script. So there was no <laughs> way I was not going to include that amazing set, you know. So, but I mean, but we talk about the length a little bit, like John was talking about. I mean. Uh, this screenplay is about 86 pages. Um, the price of anything, the pre-shooting script, and I know they ended up truncating a few things out of that, but the pre-shooting script was only about 48 to 50 pages. Mm. So I can guarantee you that, it's, that this is at least twice as long as that one was. So, I mean, uh, there, there's a lot that goes on in this story. Well, let me let me give you guys a little bit of an exclusive here. We, we have, you know, being the 10th year anniversary, we have two kind of spin-offs that we have going on in the fan film world. We have um, one that I've been working two years to launch and, and just taking my time to do it right, lessons learned, incorporating from having done this a while. It's called Farragut Forward, and we made an official announcement on Trek Movie last month, and it's essentially progressing the characters from the Star Trek, I mean the Starship Farragut universe, and, mm-hmm. and transposing them 15 years forward. And so it's our Wrath of Khan. So we are having sets that will be built that will be from the movie eras with the quilted chairs that they had and, and some. Oh of the, wow! So everything you know, just the attention to detail from the classic Trek with the sets and props and costumes. Same is going to be applied here. So you'll see the monster maroon uniforms, the white nautical beautiful shirts. Mm-hmm. You'll see those uniforms. You're going to see the sets as much as we can do with space and budget. Um, but we'll be building those sets. There's no other fan film group doing what we are going to be doing. Two things, we're, we're transposing our characters and continuing new stories in st- of Starship Farragut, but working on both platforms, TOS and the movie era of TOS. And we're, we're building the sets and the props and costumes. There's no other group that has those accurate costumes and the sets the way that they are. And, I mean, I'm not talking about using office chairs. These are chairs that are going to be custom-made, like I said, with the quilted back and, and the you know the the thing that comes up on the the arm like this, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. as much as as much as possible, but having the the elaborate sets. Some will be implemented or augmented with some green screen, but we're kicking a lot of ideas. We've got some people that have volunteered to help build those sets locally, outside of the people down in Georgia. Um, so it's a different cr- group of, of volunteers on the the construction side. The costumes I've pretty much hammered down, with the exception of the jacket. So that is going. We're going to do an official launch of the website. The le- website is built, farragutforward.com, and plan to launch it on our conception date of, of Starship Farragut sometime in November. <laughs> the other thing is too, and this is kind of recent. There's a, a group that Mike and I kind of raised our eyebrows a couple months ago. It's called. It was called Star Trek Isolation. But um, we have brought that under the Farragut Films banner. It will be a true spin-off of Farragut. We have taken one of the characters of the series, played by Eric Moran of Heroes of Cosplay. He's a oh wow. He's a former pro wrestler. I can't say ex-marine because once a marine, you're always a marine. But he was in the Marine Corps, 
And the great guy, he's, he goes to all these conventions. He's a notable guy, and he's involved in a lot of different film projects. And he is he's playing one of the series lead, in addition to a guy named Dave Hunter from L.A., who will be the captain. It's a different ship. Um, but the character of Eric's, whose name is Jericho, he actually replaces Prescott. So when Prescott left the um, Farragut, this guy takes over, and then he leaves at some point before um, Weston comes aboard. And we just filmed our first episode in Conspiracy of Innocence with Weston. So we've already, presumably, you know, there, there's been a security guy since Prescott. Paul Sieber left, the, the character left, I guess he went to the Enterprise. He, he transferred out in 2008. <laughs> and we just filmed our last film in 2013. So 13 minus 8 is... Um, Five. Is it five? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> for five years, so for five years, there we didn't we didn't have a security chief, and uh, or you did not see him, but he did exist, and his name was Jericho. He was lieutenant commander, and he was he was on the Farragut, and we're film we've just filmed a, a small vignette, uh, a prelude called Chain of Command, which shows him leaving the ship, and so he leaves the Farragut, and he, he goes on to the Babylon and a new ship. And it's not it's not a Constitution class starship, but it's a TOS era look and feel of the the TOS movie era of ships. Fran Joseph designs, if you will, cool. and something happens there, and, and so there's going to be a launch on that. So that'll be is and that is a true spinoff. We've kicked stuff, but they they liked what we've done. They respected what they've done. Dave Turner and and Eric Moran, the other two executive producers, and so Mike Benar and I are putting this on under our belt. And it's all the same resources will be applied towards that, the people that we've broached on board. The concept is great because a lot of it, it essentially, I'll leave it, when you see it, you'll see it. But Because uh, I don't want to give too much either. I like, you know, I don't want to tell people, I want to be able to see it. But the concept is, is really good. It, it's different, so it's not just a regular ship in space. It's not that kind of concept. And I think people like it, and, and Eric Moran and Dave Hunter are, have been just great guys. They're they don't have an ego. They're not narcissistic. They understand what this project is about, and they're, they just they had a lot of respect for what Mike and I have built, and they asked to be aboard and, and under the Farragut film banner, and, and so we, we just want to see more of Star Trek out there, but original Trek. Yeah. So the, look forward to seeing those projects. Oh, definitely. But first, The Crossing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, The Crossing. So with your Kickstarter, uh, as of right now, have $10,456 We do pledged. So that's very close to your $15,000 goal. With, mm-hmm. And you have about 18 days left. Yes. And because of that, we implemented just a few days ago our stretch goal of 18K. So we bumped it up another three grand and stretch, stretching out towards that as well. The more money that we bring in, obviously, the better the quality. We can get other things. Mm-hmm. When the budget was put together for this film, we had actually three tiers of what we needed. One was the baseline, which was the 15K. If we to make this film, this is the bare, bare uh, nuts and bolts of what is going to what's going to require to make the film. Mm-hmm. Then we had a second tier, so and then there's a third tier. So we've implemented the second tier budget for the film. So there's other things that we can do for not only for the crossing but the Farragut project as a whole. Mm-hmm. That's what we're working towards now. Excellent. Well, I, I will say I just pledged right. <laughs> as we were recording this. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. And yeah, I, I've been catching up in preparation for the interview, just watching your guys's episodes, and 
And I also really love the animated series episodes. I, I think those are fantastic as well. That's probably the number one thing that when we go to conventions that we always get asked is when you're going to do another animated. <laughs> and there is a script that exists that actually takes place. There was a comic book that talked, it was called Dearly Departed, that showcased the story of how Prescott left a Farragut. So this is new animated script, which was co-worked with Joshua Johnson, uh, Bef- who played the character of Bafuzlik on Exeter, he actually has the the security chief, Cuddy, and Bafuzlik coming on board. So Cuddy, in the animated episodes, actually replaces Prescott, and Bafuzlik comes aboard as a communications officer. And it's just a, it's a very short film. So we have that. And But Michael Strzok, who spearheaded, came up with the idea to do the animated episodes of Starship Farragut. It takes a lot of time and effort. So mm-hmm. And with other paid projects he's working on, it, it's... How can you um, – you got to have some generate funds for that. So, But in talking with Michael just a few days ago with the success of our Kickstarter campaign, that perhaps after this, you know, relatively soon, we could do another one that would just be – just be for the animated episodes, another one of Sarsha Farragut. Fantastic. And a lot of people like it, and even, even celebrities seem to be <laughs> – to do a voice acting gig seems to be a little bit more, I guess, um, convenient for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Russ and Chase Masterson and Chris Doohan worked on the second one. And for the first one, who did we have, Paul, for the first the Power um, Stone? You know, my think, brain's going to freak out. <laughs> I think maybe Vic Mignogna did uh, a voice. Vic so Mignogna we had. We had somebody else, too. And now my brain is going to completely flake out. I can't believe I did of, that. But a lot of people just really like the – because I always – always get questions about when you're going to do the next one. So to answer the question, we may see the Farragut crew on the next animated episode. Yeah, unfortunately for me, my best acting was when I was a cartoon. So. <laughs> you have some interesting perks for your Kickstarter. Yes. Um, I saw one of them was the ta- uh, data tapes. We have some data tapes, um, and, and all the perks that we're, we're, we're offering will be... Um, screen use. So people will get them after the film and they will be screen used. So data tapes is one. You know, those wooden cards that would go in the, the, the computer slots. We have um, the mirror, mirror chest badges, so the little dagger with the orange-red globe that actually, instead of the left, it's on the right side of the uniform. We have 20 of those currently going that will, after filming, they will go out to the people that have given money, the backers for those. We have some screen-used costumes for both Tackett and Carter, and I lowered the prices yesterday. The Carter tunic is now 250 and the Tackett tunic is 200 And for screen-used and for that the fabric alone and, and the rink braid and everything that goes into it, I think those are good deals. In fact, the Carter tunic was made of vintage uh, fabric from the same bolt of the original fabric that was used in, 19- oh, wow. in 1987. Paramount auctioned a whole bunch of fabrics and stuff, and there was bolts of the red, gold, and the teal blue fabric that was used. It was the square weave brand. There was a diamond weave as well, but both were used, and this is of the square weave. And and so if you're looking, it wasn't in the, obviously, the original series, but the fabric itself could have been cut and used in the same production. So you have vintage fabric. That was was my costume, so that's why it's it's, um, 50 bucks more, so... So anyone that wants a screen used uniform, we have those. We have daggers. Yeah, the the resin. I was going to say the resin daggers of of 
mirror, mirror, dagger, and we have the agonizers. We have some of those that are mm, perks. Nice. And they're yeah. all being made by Prop Master and uh, Mike Bednar, so you're you're getting a quality piece of work for your collection. Nice. Well, there's, there's even a real high level one too. That's the that the uh, Mike Bednar when we started the very first episode of the Captaincy for Farragut, he designed a, a a phaser rifle that would be the next progression of the hand phaser. And so he designed this amazing phaser rifle, and they've been using them in their episodes. In fact, other another fan film actually borrowed them. That's how cool they are. But <laughs> I mean, and I think those are a high level perk is to give away a screen. They are. They are. In this one he's too. got a high. He's got a, a good price tag on those. Um, but in terms that's of a unique piece. A working prop that's unique and has been used in other productions, um, kind of a one-off. Um, that's the rationale behind it. Um, we do have some other walk-on roles, and we've got two people that I have to outfit with costumes that will be background in the film, so they get to be a part of that, and that's cool. We had a gentleman last year named David. I can never pronounce his name, so I just call him David A., and he showed up, and we had a video the other day of, of him accepting. Um, we we take to heart people that support us. It means a lot because we're fans, and to see other people as fans, it just means the world to us, so we... We present him with a whole bunch of gifts and props, and we had a video I, I, that we that I posted the other night. So you can see how we reward people that that give back to our project. That's awesome. When this debuts, will it be like your other episodes, download only, or will you put it on a streaming service like YouTube or? Well, we put it on both YouTube and our Starship Farragut website. They're both free for downloads and viewing. Okay. And but if you're you know, we have DVDs that are professionally made, so any conventions that we go to when we set up an exhibit, we have a display. We have all the DVDs lined up, and they're free. Uh, we do graciously, and we encourage people to donate mm-hmm. money, and, and certainly more than two, a couple of bucks because the DVD itself costs that much. So we, so we don't sell our DVDs. Um, they're all free, and we give them out, and we're just happy to get it out to people that don't even. There's still people that don't know about us, so it's great to keep getting it out there and have new fans appreciate what we're doing. I, I was just telling John earlier today, um, I was looking at um, some international Star Trek fan clubs to um, get the notification out for our Kickstarter, and I found this Indonesian Star Trek group. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I so I posted the Kickstarter on their page, and next thing you know, we've got this, um, we've, we've got a group of Indonesian fans now. They're all excited that, that we contacted them, and they're, we're going to be Farragut fans, and we're going to support you guys. So I'm going like, okay, great, and we've got these new fans in Indonesia. I'll take them, you know. Nice. So, yeah. I mean, hey, what the heck, you know. You, <laughs> it's nice. You know, Star Trek is universal. It, 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 yeah. it spans languages. It spans countries. It spans cultures. That's what's so great about this. I went on to try to see some other places where I could talk about the Kickstarter, uh, John, and sure enough, I found Star Trek groups in France, Austria, Germany, Peru. I mean, it was unbelievable. I had no idea these groups were out there like this. It was absolutely, uh, it was, it was actually fun finding them. <laughs> you know, and um, several of them, I've had some very interesting conversations, but not one of them uh, refused letting me join their groups or anything like that, or didn't, or got upset that I'd want to post about the Kickstarter and about our project. They were all thrilled to death that that we were making the effort to come and see them. So there's a whole group of fans out there that we still need to reach, and uh, hopefully this will help get us some of that notice going. I hope so. Definitely. The next episode's a Mirror Universe episode, like you said. Will that be? A little fun to diverge from maybe your established 
character traits for, for some of the characters? For some of the characters, I would say yes. You know, it, it's one of those things that we didn't want to do what people expected when we said Mirror Universe. And what people oh, okay. would expect would just say, like, whoop, here's the Farragut, here's Evil Carter, here's Evil Tackett, here's Evil Smithfield. Oh, there they are. We expect that. We didn't... We're not quite going that direction. I see. Um, okay. Yes, this, initially, does, this but it, episode but involves we it. Initially, we were. And I'll yes. tell you about the initial concept. It had essentially the, the Potemkin, which is also in the script. Since since this is not divulging, since this is the old concept, it's not divulging any secrets. So hmm. the Farragut encounters the Potemkin. It crosses over. And it was initially called the Potemkin Pass-Through. And we get to see an old mentor, Captain Wilcox, um, but we shortly discover that this is not our Wilcox, it's from the other universe. And he tries to solicit our help to go back and cross over and in getting and join their side to fight the Vulcans. And we quickly, you know, we're, obviously we're not going to do that. And they got, they commandeered the Farragut and they took over. And, but the great thing about it was that you would get to see uh, a Lieutenant Carter on the other ship. And he's bereft of any kind of leadership and... He's been bullied by Prescott, who's kicked him around, and he, through seeing his alternate, this other Carter, who's someone of a, of, of, you know, a model for him to look up to, and when we're thrown in a brig, I'm talking to myself, and I encourage him that, you know, you're, 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 you're better than this. You have great aspirations in life. You know, you need to man up and take control and. He helps us, and at the end, he battles. Pres There's a battle with Prescott, the bad Prescott and, and Carter, and a phaser comes in play, and the the lieutenant Carter shoots him, and, and then takes over the old the Potemkin. He goes back, kind of thing. It was really good, and and Smithfield had a, a prominent role, and was kind of a I don't want to say dominatrix, but she certainly was in, in a leadership role. Tackett was not in the other universe, or at least not on this ship, and. Um, but the evil Prescott was, and it was a very interesting dynamic there. So that was the old concept. So whether or not some of those parts still carry on in this new film, um, don't want to say. But like okay. I said, we, we, we did revisit that old treatment. So for whatever it's worth. Cool. Uh, that sounds good. I, I'm sure the Crossing episode will be just as good, if not better, because that, that, I really liked that. That was pretty cool. I, I think you're going to be extremely pleased. But one of the things John and I talked about at the baseball game in 2007, John had gotten, like, I hate to say this, but John had gotten, like, free tickets or something from work, so him and Mike and I went, I, you know, to this day, I don't remember the game because we got so involved in this conversation about this story that I don't even think we watched much baseball. No, we didn't. It was, you know, but one of the things we talked about with the Mirror Universe, and when you saw the Mirror Universe in the other Trek series as they progressed, it was more than just saying, like, oh, you know, here's Carter, here's Evil Carter. I, I never kind of looked at it from that fashion because when you looked at Spock and Mirror Spock, they were mm -hmm. pretty much the same guy. There, there was maybe a little bit of his personality that was different. So John and I were kind of like working off the emphasis that the Mirror Universe was, and why this guy was Lieutenant Carter, that was nobody in the Mirror Universe, was one little personality trait. Let's take away Jack Carter's confidence. Who would he be? And so if you see that one thing, so like with the, the evil Prescott in that original concept, it was like, let's take away his off button. Like John talked about him being wound up so tight. Well, let's, let's take away the off switch. So those two characters, all we did was make one little tweak in their personality, and they were dramatically different people. Yep. So, you know, we like to look at the Mirror Universe, um, and in the case of The Crossing, you will see that as well. It's not quite as simple as, you know, 
here's a goatee, and the guy's a bad version of himself. Now, it, there's more to it than that. But really, that was that was kind of what we're going for. So, yeah, like, like I said, yeah, it is. It does involve the mirror universe, but to just say it's a mirror Farragut, no, no, I don't want to say anything more. All right, <laughs> that's my maniacal laugh time. <laughs> Your website is starshipfarragut.com. Your Twitter, at Farragut1647. And uh, your Facebook, Starship Farragut. If you go to YouTube, you can search for our stuff that's out there as well. A simple Google search and you'll find us. Right. Yeah, uh, it looks like youtube.com slash user slash Starship Farragut. If you want to watch the episodes, it, it's always best if you can do the downloads because you're going to get the better quality, um, right. particularly with the last two episodes because the, the visual quality is, is so much higher um, right. that it's really worth the download, or if you get the chance, you know, come to the convention, meet the Farragut crew, give them a little donation and walk home with the DVD, then you're really going to get the best quality one. So, you know, that's just a little encouragement to that direction. <laughs> Are you guys going to be at any conventions? Yes, we will be at RetroCon in Philly on the 28th of this month, and I'll, I'll be sitting next to Chris Dewan, um, the son of the original Scotty. He's representing Star Trek Continues, and I'm representing Farragut, and and in addition to Chris, Chase Masterson will be there. So we'll have both two of the three voices that were in our animated episode, um, The Needs of the Many. So the people that like the animated episodes, they'll be able to get a lot of the um, animated episodes featuring them. And um, I'll be bringing Conspiracy of Innocence and, and The Price of Anything. I think I'm bringing those three, definitely showcasing those three efforts. Oh, and we have a new CD uh, compilation of all of our music by Hedderin, uh, with the exception of the one Conspiracy of Innocence that's available. We might auction those off or something special with those. Oh, cool. We just we just put those on our Kickstarter page as well as a perk, the compilation CD from Hedderin. So Hedderin's been really good because he's creating original soundtracks. So mm -hmm. it's all original, great musical scores. Oh, fantastic. And how many other fan films truly have that? I mean, yeah. a lot of the other ones, they recycle the music from the TV show and stuff exactly. like that. I, I it doesn't. They've had an original score from day one. From day exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Paul, on that note, I was talking to Michael Strzok of NeoFX yesterday, and I was saying, how cool is it that we have, I've collected all these musical soundtracks for all the years. I have a library on my shelf of all this music. And now, because of all the years, we have a compilation CD. So all the best of the best is, is on this one CD. And I'm like, like how, how cool is that? Yeah. Really cool. uh, one last thing, can you tell us about Farragut Fest coming up? Sure. It's, it's the first weekend in December. We've, I think this is our fifth or sixth annual event. Um, we've been having a, an event, I think, every year at the studio, and I think with the exception of the first one, which was in April of 2008 or 2009, we've, we have it every first weekend in December. It's at our studio in Kingsland, Georgia. It's um, a two-day event this year. It's Saturday and Sunday. There's a lot of hotels and amenities and restaurants near our studio, and essentially for the whole day, you are, we have the building that we have, the half side is the 10,000-square-foot studio. Mm -hmm. That's where all the sets are at. They'll all be lit, lighted up, working sets, so you can tour the sets, sit in the captain's chair, get your photo taken, walk into Jeffrey's tube or climb up the <laughs> Jeffrey's tube. It's not exactly um, – it's kind of interesting to walk into Jeffrey's tube. It's not really, um, it's not really ergonomic or, or friendly for <laughs> – walking up in. And anyway, you can stay in a transporter room, you can walk around the sets, 
the other side of the building, which is where we do makeup, craft services, where we have a green room, and they do all the makeup and, and wardrobe, it's big enough to where we have, like, dealers set up, and so that's the way we've done it. We had other rooms set up, like panel rooms that you would go at a convention where you could watch movies, and then you, you could talk to people, little panels and forums and such. So we'll have that, and we've got some other events, surprises for this year, but it's going to be bigger. Each year we've done it, we've made it bigger. It's a mini convention, but it's at where we have our sets. I mean, no one, that's another thing. You see a lot of other groups kind of imitating or taking the best practices that we've implemented in, in mm-hmm. their production. But we were the first, after having our built our studio, we opened it up to the public. We said, come and check this out. We welcome people to come in and see what we've built. We've never treated it like a clubhouse. We've always respected it as a film studio, but we felt we should let other people come and experience it, see the set, sit you know, sit in the captain's chair, stand up in the transporter chamber. We felt that was a way to give back, not only to our fans, but the community of St. Mary's at the time and now Kingsland, um, Georgia. Because people, when they come down, they stay at the hotels, they, go, they frequent the restaurants, and they mm-hmm. are patrons to this community that has so graciously welcomed us into their community. And we've tried to do what we can in terms of help business development and help bring awareness to that area and make it so Kingsland is not the best-kept secret on the East Coast. So this year, it's going to be our biggest event. Um, you can go to farragutfest.com for all details, and we will be pushing out updates through our Facebook page as well. Sounds Hopefully great. you guys can come down. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, might, I might have a trip to plan. <laughs> well, we, we, we had a, a, um, to tell you the type of people that come. We have people that have flown in from Burlington, Vermont. We had last year a guy who drove from Cleveland, Ohio, him and his buddy, and they drove straight down from Cleveland, Ohio. I don't think Chicago, you know, in terms of <laughs> coming down, is it's probably going to be about the same, you know, triangulation as it were. Right. Uh, but it's 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 a well worth. It is Mecca. It is the Star Trek Mecca. You have to do it. You have to make this pilgrimage once in your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's exactly what it is. It's Star Trek Mecca. That, that John, that is the perfect description. I was I work with a um a podcast group uh, that I've uh, guest hosted for a few times in D.C. called Trek Off. And um, they were uh, compiling something called Trek Off the Motion Picture, which is ah. some live footage of all of their stuff. So I said to them, I said, look, you have to talk to John Broughton. We have to get you to go down and film at least a scene on these sets. And they're like, oh, I don't know, this is a long drive. So I talked them into it. They talked to John and like, okay, we'll come down and see these sets. I sat there for three or four hours and just watched Jaws just dragging on the floor. <laughs> I mean, it's just... It is. It's. It's. If you're a Star Trek fan, it is Mecca. You have just walked into the Holy Land. I mean, you see that captain's chair on the bridge, and the way the sets are laid out, it's laid out exactly like it was in the old studio. So mm-hmm. when you're walking through the corridor, there's doors that open into rooms. <laughs> I mean, and the room is there, and you're in, the, and you see nothing but hallway. If you don't look up and see the ceiling. You would not know you were in a set. I mean, it, this is a corridor, and it's fun, and the door opens up, and you're in a briefing room, and all of a sudden you're going like, wait a minute, what, I'm in one room, you're coming down another hallway. I mean, it's unbelievable. It really is. It, it's 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 something that that that, that you just have to experience. It, it's it's worth the trip. Get in the car, guys. Come on down. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'll see if I can convince my fiance to take the trip. We'll see. Well, she loves the original series. This would be perfect, Aaron. Get some buddies oh. together. Car. 
switch off the, the two people that drove down Cleveland, they switched off. They drove it straight down nonstop. When the one got tired, they they swapped and they just kept rolling. And they did it. I mean, they did it like in I don't know, 14 or six. It was something, maybe 16 hours. It was crazy, but they 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 did it. They they rolled out and then they they left early <laughs> the next day. Um, but yeah, the, um, it is Star Trek Mecca, and you need to make that pilgrimage because there's nothing like it. The way that the corridors and the sets are all built, Mike and his team have have laid them out exactly the in the exact configuration as it was on the Paramount lot almost 50 years ago. So if you want to take a, uh, a stroll down memory lane, what it was like as an actor walking those sets, those corridors, and going from one room to the other, it is there's no other experience. I remember um, when one other group had worked with us and, and let us use their sets, and, and the first time opening up the turbo lift doors and walking onto that bridge for the first time, there's nothing like it, nothing right. ever like it. I, I appreciate the individual that that uh, facilitated that because that was a memory that was just like, wow. As a fan of that is put together, I was never into toys and, and other junk and stuff. It was always about props and costumes. Mm-hmm. I wanted to own the same types of things that they wore and held in their hand and, and interacted with. So to be able to, to have that just added a whole different perspective on things for a while. So so that there's nothing like that experience. So allowing others to have it as well, um, we want people to, to take away. It, it's a great thing. And, and to be able to, to, you also have the ability to talk to the cast and crew and meet with them. It's, it's a very good PR. We have all kinds of raffles and stuff for people. We sign autographs. We take pictures with, with people. It's just a great event. And we, we have our fans who are also dealers selling their merchandise. We're helping to support them as well. So you should really check it out. All right. Cool. Definitely. If you're serious about that girlfriend, that'd be a great place in the captain's chair, you know, put that ring on. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, you know. Not giving you any ideas or anything. But, you know, if you were, yeah, photo op, you know. That would be a good photo op. I did already propose to her. Oh, um, we missed out. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that would be a good picture. You guys allow, you said photo ops and stuff like that. Do people cosplay when they go? Oh, yeah. We have a lot of cosplay people that show up in uniform and costumes. and Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what other what other place would you want to wear a Star Trek uniform? That's very right. true. <laughs> you, you had a couple guys, I think, last year, John, that came as stormtroopers from Star Wars or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah you're right. There's, it's not just Star Trek. It's, it's all kinds of genre. Yeah. We had one female that was... Scantily clad as well. I mean, she was. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of, yeah, different people show up. I can only but imagine. Like Star Trek, we welcome them all. Right. It's a good attitude to have. I like that. That was good, John. That was really good. <laughs> Is there anything else that you guys would like to maybe disclose about the crossing? I mean, I would just end on the note of, you know, please. Support us, like Paul said, mm-hmm. one, five, ten, whatever you can afford. It is going to a worthwhile cause. If if you cannot give or just get spread the word, you will be amazed that it is the triple effect where you expand your one network and then through that network it just grows out and, and there will be people that will learn of you that they may be in a Star Trek, they may be in the independent filmmaking, they may be just Kickstarter backers, they may... Whatever. There's someone out there that through that network 
and then and tossing the line, the fishing line, and it just keeps going out further and further, you get other fish, and that's what we're trying to do here. So please support us from both financially as as well as spreading the word, and uh, we'll keep making the, the films as, as long as we can. Awesome. Thank you both for joining us today. We really appreciate thank it. You. Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you, guys. On our special 47th episode. <laughs> yes, number 47. 47, perfect. <laughs> awesome. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where you can catch a new episode every other Monday. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod. And add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com. This has been a proud production of the 4-Eyed Radio Network. Check out more shows on 4 Radio.com. Beam me up, Scott.